Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring you the guest speaker talks from the 2018 East End Conference, held at the Astronomer Pub on Middlesex Street, in the heart of the East End of London, on the 3rd and 4th of November 2018. Drew Gray is a senior lecturer in the history of crime at the University of Northampton and has published three books and several articles on crime and violence in 18th and 19th century London, including London Shadows. He has been lecturing on the Whitechapel murders and the social history of East London for many years and his talk is entitled Fake News from Whitechapel, Ripperology and the Academy. Time for our, our last talk. Uh, Drew Gray is a senior lecture, lecturer in crime at Northampton University. Also the author of three books. Uh, in June next year, uh, another book coming out, which is A, a Ripper Solution. Uh, is that the two of you? With my, with my colleague Andy. Yeah. With colleague Andy. Is there, do you want to take a bow, Andy? <laughs> uh, so that will be coming out next June. Uh, also, uh, around about that time as well, we'll be doing Strictly next year as well, so it'll be uh, <laughs> and that's the time. Strictly come uh, But there's a lot of things about uh, London then and London now. And one thing that I'm so thankful for in the 21st century is that the subject of uh, Drew's talk is just something that we just do not have to put up with today, uh, that they have to put up with in 1888, and that is, of course, fake news. Uh, we don't have any of that uh, anymore. It's something that we've managed to uh, get out of our society. So can we have a warm welcome for Drew Gray? start by putting up this quote up here from Ian Sinclair. Um, I don't know if you can all see it because um, the science lines aren't so good from over here. It says, there's something, this is from Ian Sinclair's Whitechapel, uh, Whitechapel Scarlet Tracing, it's a novel that he wrote uh, in 1987, which you may well have read. And there's something inherently seedy and salacious in continually picking off, picking the scabs off these crimes, peering at mutilated bodies, listing the undergarments, trekking over the tainted ground in quest of some long-delayed occult frisson. I'll sleep up there for the moment. <laughs> Think about that. Um, in a recent um, PhD thesis, um, and you might be surprised to know that there are PhD theses on Jack the Ripper, um, a chap called Matthew Thompson explored 130 years of Ripperology. He set out to trace the evolution of the Ripper figure and its connection to popular culture, to social concerns, and radical politics. He looked at the modern manifestation of the Ripper myth in television, in literature, in video games, and in cinema. And in doing so, he referenced a particularly unpleasant example of a Japanese adult film from 1976 about murder and sexual violence. And he noted that the fact that such films invoke the Ripper's name to communicate graphic violence and titillation only reinforces the notion that the Ripper figure is in danger of becoming trivialised for shock value. And now this is something that's bothered me as someone who teaches Jack the Ripper to undergraduate level for some time, and I know it bothers many of those who describe themselves, as I'm sure many of you do, as Ripperologists. So, I don't want to start off on the wrong foot here. Um, <laughs> Because we've got you outnumbered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm not here to knock Ripperology. Um, 
And as some of you, as Rich has mentioned, I've, I've co-written my own Ripper Solution book, which should see the light of day in June next year. So I'm certainly not here to run down Ripperology and the study of this case. But I do think we need to take stock every now and again. Um, and so this afternoon, I'd like to explore the nature of Ripperology, the myth-making associated with the Ripper case, as well as the exploitation of this. Of it. This is because I believe there are consequences that occur from the misreputation or exploitation of history. And indeed, the, the current furore um, around fake news, um, about which, of course, there is nothing new, nothing new about fake news, serves as a reminder that the casual dissemination of unchecked or unsubstantiated facts and their interpretation can be dangerous. So we, we live in a world where news is increasingly contested and the public literally now no longer, no longer knows who to believe. Now, professional historians like me are, are not the keepers of some sacred flame. I wouldn't try to be so arrogant to suggest that. Nor are we the only trustworthy individuals on the planet, far from it. Um, but academic history is concerned with sometimes deeper analysis of the past. We have, of course, the luxury of time look back across things, and the academic skills of source analysis, interrogation, historical context, which might allow us to engage more deeply with some subjects. That's not to set academia up as something special, because plenty, and you can see this just from talking to people here, from the stuff that I've read from people who, who, who are associated with, with your grouping, um, plenty of the so-called amateur history which is written about this case are equally grounded in the recognised historical processes. And I suppose what I'm going to suggest as well, of course, is that some of it isn't. Ripperology has garnered something of a bad press over the years. Much of it, uh, no, no, not all of it, which is undeserved. And the public perception of Ripperology, the public perception of Ripperology is probably very far from the reality of it. Um, however, most people will have some idea of the Ripper case and one or two of the most prominent theories, and I think perhaps even suggested in there, but few would have actually read more than one book on the subject if they'd read one at all. So popular cultural representations of Jack the Ripper are therefore much better known and understood than the history of the Whitechapel murder, his victims, or murderer, his victims, or the context in which the murders happened. I'm going to look at the phenomenon, I actually managed to say that, of Ripperology, <laughs> what it means for history, and offer some suggestions of ways in which academic history and amateur history could work together to address some of the undoubted problems that exist within the Ripperology community, broadly defined. Please don't throw things at him. Adam's got a deposit on this case. <laughs> um, writing in 1988, um, Deborah Cameron noted that Jack the Ripper has become thoroughly sanitised, turned into a folk hero like Robin Hood. His story is packaged as a bit of harmless fun. Only a spoiled sport would be tactless enough, enough to point out that it is a story of misogyny and sadism. Some years later, Robin O'Dell, who I'm probably more familiar with, um, wrote a useful retrospective of Ripperology that detailed the ways representations of the case and the emergence of a succession of suspects of the murders had evolved from the 1880s to the present day. His analysis helped show how the anti-hero of the Ripper was able to emerge in the manner which Cameron had described. 
Now, much of this has to do with the way the case was reported, right, and presented right from the very start. The Michael Diamond, in his book on sensation, has described the Ripper murders as the greatest murder sensation of the Victorian era. The brutality, the serial nature of the killings, and the failure of the police to capture anyone all contributed to making it the biggest story of the day. And one of the first published accounts of the murders was written in 1888. The History of the Whitechapel Murders, a full and authentic narrative, was published in New York in 1888. However, uh, I read this in the Bishopsgate Institute, just around the corner. However, it takes its primary source, the reportage of the contemporary London press. So as a result, it lists the nine murders that the press have linked together to create a narrative of a single assassin, something which nearly all subsequent studies started with, including it, all right, pretty much. But the, the New York article also makes several errors, and this is typical of many of the writings that have surrounded the Whitechapel murder case, uh, and it's reported. Subsequent narratives of the murders are often built on previous retellings, cannibalising information just as the papers did in 1888, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that, and taking the whole back catalogue of Ripperology, which interesting, I noticed we have a volume of going back 21 years for the Whitechapel Society, taking that whole back catalogue as sacrosanct, which has allowed errors in the narrative to cloud future research so get piled on top of each other. Now, um, Philip Subden, um, one of the first academics, I think, to tackle the case, reminded us that it is common for authors to perpetuate errors by simply borrowing facts from one another. So, off repeating half-truths and myths. He said, um, for far too long, these myths have clouded our understanding of the character and background of the victim, the details of the crime, even the appearance of the murderer. He was writing about the Andy Chapman case in particular, but I think his words hold true to the whole story. Um, Lee Perry Curtis claims that what transpired in London during the autumn of 1888 was not just a series of five sadistic murders, but a serial story combining mystery and sensational, sensation horror spread out over almost four months and cobbled together by a metropolitan press eager to boost sales. And Darren Aldrich, um, an academic at, um, at Worcester, I think, he argued that the way that the Victorian press handled the case linking together the murders of Emma Smith, to Tabram, to Nichols, and then to Chapman, established the idea of the lone killer and sidelined any competing explanations. Thereafter, this is the only narrative that has been generally accepted and forms the basis for all the solutions offered up by researchers, including mine. Not only did the press of the day help construct a narrative of the murders, they also set down the framework for identifying the killer. And in the process, they helped establish many of the distinctive features of Ripperology. This point is emphasised by Professor Christopher Frayling, who argued that ever since 1888, we've been searching for an archetype of the killer rather than the killer himself. Frayling suggested that the police hunt for the murderer was undermined from the very start because the police, Watson and Co., were chasing a cultural stereotype rather than a serial murderer. Frayling's typology of the three, as he quoting him, the three ready-made models of the sort of person who might do such things included the English Milord, the Mad Doctor, and the deranged Jewish immigrant, and they reflected contemporary fears about the other. 
that these arose is explained by contemporary concerns about the decadent aristocracy, the emerging medical profession, and high levels of migration from Eastern Europe, but also by the paucity of official source material. As a result, certain surviving documents, including a number that surfaced decades after the murder ceased, have been given undue significance in much the same way that artefacts are going dangerous ground here. Artefacts supposedly associated with the river have, such as the diary, and Edo's shawl, or Adeline's walking cane. This is the conclusion reached by one author, Spiro Dimolianus, who suggested that the McNaughton Memorandum, which named three suspects, Druid, Oswald, and Kuzminski, and the Swanson Marginalia, and Sir Rob Anderson's memoirs, have all done more to obscure the truth then they have to provide historical closure. And this is obviously until Adam's book comes out next year. Um, Anderson apparently favoured the idea that Jack was Jewish. But given his well-known dislike of aliens and his lack of direct knowledge of the case, this should be treated with considerable scepticism. Given that, as Dimit Alanis points out, this merely conveyed an entrenched racial prejudice of the time. This scepticism with official accounts is also shared by Craig Monk, who reminds us to be cautious of autobiographical accounts from those like Anderson, McNaughton and Henry Smith, um, because like the authors of all not life narratives, they each construct individual truths that have but an uncertain rela relationship to, um, to verifiable fact. In other words, anyone penning their own diary, memoir, or as I had to do recently, version of a traffic altercation um, can, can attest Personal accounts of events are imbued with personal bias, self-justification, and in some cases, of course, ignorance. So Melville McNaughton, unlike you lot, preferred Montague Druitt as a candidate. Druitt left a suicide note in which he declared he was scared of going mad like mother. Mental instability chimed with popular contemporary notion that the killer must have been someone that manifested a split personality, decades before psychiatry could better explain mental illness and suggested that a civilised gentleman had somehow lost control of himself and reverted to his primeval roots. This fitted nicely with late Victorian fantasies born out of Robert Louis Stevenson's novella about the doctor who experimented with an alter ego. Ideas that the killer was a slumming aristocrat, a Champagne Charlie or a Burlington Bertie also reflected late Victorian distaste for the excesses of the rich and the infestation of the East End by hordes of newspaper men um, helped expose the desperate poverty of the residents of the abyss and emphasised the huge gulf in wealth between the two halves of the capital of empire, something we've also left behind in the past, of course. For some, the Ripper symbolised the callous disregard of the poor by the rich in late Victorian Britain. It rather neglected, however, the uncomfortable reality that a West End slummer or a toff would find it less easy to melt into Whitechapel's labyrinth of streets, alleys and courts and even the police, that even the police found difficult to navigate in the 1880s. The press fanned the flames of division between the classes in Victorian London as they raised concerns that neglected poverty in the East End of London might lead to bloody, bloody revolution as it had elsewhere on the European continent. George Bernard Shaw, writing in the Star newspaper in September 1888, described the murderer as an independent genius. He said, Whilst we conventional social democrats were wasting our time on education, agitation and organisation, some independent genius has taken the matter in hand and by simply murdering and disemboweling four women 
has converted the proprietary class to an inept form of communism. William Morris made a very similar point in Commonwealth, suggesting that the fiend murderer may become more effective reformer than all the honest propagandists in the world. So, central to understanding the effect of the Jack the Ripper phenomenon on late Victorian society is the way in which the case was used by overlapping and sometimes competing interest groups from philanthropists, I managed to say that as well, and social commentators to radical politicians left and right, and of course, the purveyors of popular culture and entertainment. Much has been made of the positive influence the murderer supposedly had on social reform, particularly in the immediate aftermath of the killings, when swarms of slum housing was cleared away to build new, clean model dwellings, something that Philip mentioned this morning. However, before we get carried away with the notion that the Ripper did some good, it's important to understand that this is also part of the mythology surrounding the murders. While Odell declared that after the murders, Britain at last woke up to the poverty on the doorstep of its capital city and much-needed reform quickly arrived, he neglects to mention that the attempts to alleviate poverty were both partial and short-lived. Not only did the popular press seek to exploit a crime news story by the use of sensational language, they also painted a picture of Whitechapel's degraded state, helping build an image of a netherworld that can be seen in the writings of contemporaries such as Walter Besant, Octavia Hill and Andrew Mears. This is important because the reality was that Whitechapel and Spitalfields was a very much more mixed environment than these reports suggested. One only has to study Charles Booth's poverty map to see the East End was far from being completely degraded. The local press often refuted or played down claims that the area was the cause of the murders and that its inhabitants were in any way degraded. However, the idea that Whitechapel was so far removed from the rest of London as to be almost a separate country has persisted. And today, nearly all books, TV documentaries or movies that represent, or represent the East, East London in the Victorian era routinely trot out the same narrative of it as a place forever synonymous with poverty and crime. And one of the key myths we need to be challenging then is that of the area itself. The impoverished streets and the slum housing depicted by Mears in his bitter cry of outcast London in 1883, or in all the newspaper reports of Whitechapel doss houses, infested with drunken men and women in search of cheap sex and the next picture of gin, have helped to create an image which is stuck with us. John Tenniel's image of the nemesis and the neglect is another excellent illustration of how contemporaries portray the East End, but it's not necessarily an accurate picture of, of the area. In nearly all the movies about, about the Ripper, London is dark and foggy. The smog caused by thousands of coal fires gives it a spooky Gothic feel. Um, but as you know, none of the murders occurred in the middle of the night or in the midst of fog. Just as the killer never wore a top, top hat or swirled a black cape, we have invented an image of the streets that fits our imagination of the murders rather more than the reality of them. So as Clive Bloom insists, the East End was more than a place. It was a living symbol of the worst side of Victorian society and therefore by implication, the failure of Victorian civilization. So we can see how the myths about Jack the Ripper in the area he haunted have developed over 130 years since the murders occurred. And these have been fueled by ongoing speculation about the lack of a clear and universally accepted protagonist. Put another way, 
Because the Whitechapel murderer has never been caught, the search for Jack the Ripper has become the quintessential murder mystery, and this has been further exaggerated by the attempt to establish who he was. The list of suspects is endless, much more than you could get onto your, your screen mark. Um, and his attitude with each and every new book on the subject, guilty as charged. Um, doctors like Sir William Gull, Dr. Um, Donston Stevenson, Dr. John Williams, or Francis Tumblety, and gentlemen like Montague Druitt, the Duke of Clarence, James Maybrick, or Walter Sickert, along with mad, bad, or simply dangerous crew of others, Aaron Kosminski, 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 whatever, um, George Chapman, William Berry, George, Joseph Barnett, all of these compete for our attention. But as Frayling reminds us, this is to miss the point. None of these men, and it is invariably almost always men, can have been proven to be the Ripper since insufficient forensic material survives from the period to establish anyone's guilt beyond doubt, if not necessarily beyond reasonable doubt. What we are left with then is a mythologized version of the killer as someone or something symbolic of modern popular rather than academic misunderstandings of the late 19th century. Clive Bloom has suggested that the Ripper murders are the final frenzied acknowledgement of the coming of the age of materialism. He sees Jack as a timeless monster, not bound in the age of Victorian gaslight, but able to travel and impact our own world, a sort of malign Doctor Who, if you like. While academic history has largely ignored the Ripper murders, other disciplines have been less quick to turn up their noses. Cultural, literature and film studies have all found something interesting to say about Jack. Gary Colville and Patrick Luciano dedicate an entire volume to the study of the cultural impact of Jack Ripper on the entertainment industry. Similarly, Claire Smith has explored the symbolism in movie representations of Jack. Colville and Luciano argue that it is not so much who the Ripper was that fascinates the public, as much as it is what the Ripper was and continues to be pervasive representation of ancient evil loose in a progressive technological world. So the figure of the Ripper has become has been hijacked from multiplicity of purposes. Now this was apparent right from the very start of Ripperology, in the days, weeks and months following the murders of the five canonical victims in 1888 to the Terror. Suggestions that the killer was a monster, inhuman and certainly not English, arose from popular superstitions can't say that. Popular superstitions and prejudices. It was easy to point the finger at the Jewish immigrant community with their ritualized butchery and foreign customs, or at the Irish whose Fenian outrages had been grabbing headlines throughout the 1880s. These all played into deeply ingrained folk traditions. Victorian Britain has an established tradition of mythic characters that were drawn from centuries of folklore. As London filled up with tens of thousands of migrants from within, <coughs> from within the British Isles and agricultural workers rendered obsolete by the mechanisation for farming, they brought with them an oral tradition of fairy stories. In addition to the canon of folk devils, new characters like Spring Hill Jack and Sweeney Todd helped forge a modern urban mythology that blended with Celtic traditions and myths brought by the more exotic migrants from Eastern Europe, like the Golem, for example. Um, these mutated and merged with fears about this developing modern industrial and urban society. And as Claire Smith has written, fantasy ecla literature produced the male characters that still dominate our cultural imagination. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
Dracula, Sherlock Holmes, and Dorian Gray all emerged at the end of the 19th century, along with Jack the Ripper. With Jekyll and Hyde playing on the London stage and a waxworks exhibition featuring the mutilated bodies of victims appearing on the Whitechapel Road, it is not hard to see how the boundaries between reality and myth, history and fiction were blurred from the very beginning of the Ripper drama. In 2014, the British Library staged a major exhibition of the Gothic tradition, covering 250 years of art and culture, which featured the infamous Dear Boss Letter, cementing Jack the Ripper in popular culture um, forever. The 2001 movie From Hell was itself inspired by the graphic novel of the same name, written and drawn by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. Moore and Campbell's novel utilises a cast of hundreds from London's history to blend mythology with history and politics and reveal that the murders were part of a conspiracy to uphold the state and patriarchy. Quite apart from the fact that it bore no relationship with the realities of the murder case as we understand it, um, both the graphic novel and the film version from, from Hell continue to perpetuate the myths of the case and a vision of Victorian London which owes more to fiction than it does to history. This is echoed in other fictional works that draw on the Ripper myth for inspiration. Both Peter Ackroyd and um, Ian Sinclair deploy what's called psychogeography in their novelised versions of the Capitol. This alchemical blending of sources to paint a mythologised version of the past has been a literary form since at least the beginning the period of the murders themselves. This process continues apace, with a glut of Victorianism appearing on the large and small screen in recent years. Ackroyd's Limehouse Gollum had life breathed into it by Juan Hollis Medina and Jane Goldman, while River Street has enjoyed five series since it first aired in 2012. The latter used a mixture of real historical figures, Fred Aberline, Edmund Reed, for example, and placed them in a real historical setting, exposing them to fictionalised versions of real events, while at the same time presenting us with a 21st century vision of late 19th century London. Just look at the the, the doctor's post-mortem room. That's meant to look like a how we might imagine a Victorian one version of exactly the same thing you might see on, what is it, you know, Prime Sus not Prime Suspect, the one. CSI. Sorry? CSI. CSI or something like that, thank you, yeah. John Logan, I don't know if you've seen it, but John Logan's Penny Dreadful went even further. It combined fictional personalities from the 1800s with real-life narratives and depicted London as a sort of steampunk capital of empire. Here, Dracula fought with Victor Frankenstein while Dorian Gray interfered from the sidelines. No relation, by the way. Um, to what extent do these versions of the past, however entertaining they are, continue to contribute to a misinterpretation of that past? And does that, does that matter? It's you, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, according to Kate Lonsdale, Jack the Ripper remains a definitional paradox. He's both labelled and disembodied, both historical figure and discursive presence, both representation and reality. He is simultaneously nobody, somebody, and everybody. For Clive Bloom, Jack was also an everyman character, an icon of late Victorianism. Colville and Luciani argue that through the film, through film, the character of Jack the Ripper has transcended mere criminality to become a representation of the dark side of ourselves, and hence the Ripper is no longer somebody, but everybody. 
Self-evidently, of course, while Jack the Ripper, the figure created by popular culture, might be every man, the Whitechapel murderer was very real. Moreover, the idea that a violent male killer was able to terrify, kill and disembowel his victims without being caught has given hundreds of serial murderers and rapists license to replicate his crimes in the intervening century or more. Charlotte Mallinson, who um, some of you made her speak a year or so ago, has drawn important parallels between the representation of the murders and the profile of the Ripper, and a succession of <coughs> male serial killers from Peter Sutcliffe onwards. The symbolic use of the historical Jack the Ripper to perpetuate what she describes as whorephobia and misogyny in attacks on women echoes down the century, and is sadly ever-present in modern Ripperology, she argues, and in popular culture surrounding the, Rip the, the Whitechapel case. In a, in, a, in, a, in a recent exchange on social media, the writer and historian Hallie Rubenhold, who has come under attack from some ripperologists for her suggestion that they have ignored the victims of the ripper and condemned ripperology as a whole as mis misogynistic, I don't think she's done, posted an image of a t-shirt being sold on <coughs> which used the stereotypical image of the ripper's top hat, cape and knives over an overtly sexualized picture of a woman's exposed vulva with her intestines ripped out. This exploitation of the case might be dismissed as an example of one-off opportunistic venture that caters for a disturbed minority if it wasn't for the fact that the 20, this year's 2018 London Dungeon campaign, um, advertising campaign, placed the exploitative and violent themes of the Whitechapel case at the very heart of its promotional campaign on the London Underground. The exhibit there makes no attempt to contextualise the murders or acknowledge the victims as ordinary and innocent human beings. It simply exploits a very real historical tragedy for financial gain, presenting it as entertainment, something to laugh and scream about. Now, in 2015, the Ripperology community tackled the question of sensational exploitation head-on in a special edition of the monthly Ripperologist magazine. Adam Wood's editorial asked, are we historians or sensationalists? Um, if I'm not, not misinterpreting you here, he concluded with a call for common sense and decency. But the recent publicity for Ruben Hull's new book on the five canonical victims and her appearance at a one-day conference in September suggests there's still much work to be done to clean up Ripperology, as a majority of those involved desire. In that issue, in the 2015 issue, is a thoughtful and poignant article by Kate Amin, who offers a view of feminism and its relationship to Ripperology notably in the light of the opening of the so-called Jack the Ripper Museum in Cable Street that year. Amin concluded in her article, sorry, concluded her article with the statement, The truth is, however, that while money continues to be made in the exploitation of the more gruesome aspects of the case, and the focus of the media remains on the who-done-it story, this will always lead feminists to argue that the really important story, that of the women, their lives, their struggles, and their place in society, is lost. Now, I think that was it's an important piece that she wrote. <coughs> the power of the Ripper to legitimise violence against women was recognised by some, at least, as early as 1888. Like the London monster scare of the 1790s, Jack the Ripper was a useful mechanism to, rep to reassert patriarchy and define who was and who was not a respectable or decent woman. Both Judith Walkovich and Deborah Cameron referred to a contemporary letter published by the Daily News in the year of the murders. It was from Florence Fenwick Miller, a London journalist and platform woman, as Walkovich described her. 
Miller wrote that week by week, month by month, women are kicked, beaten, jumped on until they're crushed, chopped, stabbed, seamed with, seamed with rip vitriol, bitten, eviscerated with red hot pokers, and deliberately set on fire. And this sort of outrage, if a woman dies, is called manslaughter. And if she lives, it's common assault. The Whitechapel murders have continued to provide a common vocabulary of male violence against women, a vocabulary now more than 100 years old. Its persistence owes much to the mass media's exploitation of ripper iconography, depictions of female mutilation in mainstream cinema, celebrations of the ripper as a hero of crime, intensify fears of male violence, and convince women that they are helpless victims. For all the progress modern society has made in addressing male violence, it's only now, in 2018, that legislators are considering adding misogyny to the list of hate crimes, giving violence inspired by a hatred of women equal status to that currently ascribed to racism and homophobia. And as Kate Emin, Emin assisted in 2015, the study of the Whitechapel murders is not inherently anti-feminist or misogynist, but the glorification of the killer as a man who mutilates women and gets away with it most certainly is. Um, there is misogyny within the Ripperology community, even if it exists on the margins with certain misguided individuals. How this is tackled is clearly a problem for a body of people that has no institutional core, as Paul Begg and I have discussed at some length. You don't apply to be a member of the club, you just pop up on message boards or social media sites. Unpleasantness and abusive behaviour can get you banned or excluded, but in the modern world of cyberspace, it's almost, but impossible, it's almost impossible to silence discordant voices. The various river tours are not subject to licensing by nature of their content. Many excellent guides and walks take place every month, but equally there are exploitative and overly, overly sensational ones as well. Um, that's, sorry, that's a question. As Warwick and Willis declare declared in their introduction to the volume of essays that was to launch a greater academic interest in the subject, Jack the Ripper is a phenomenon that shows no sign of being incarcerated. The outpouring of Ripper books, most of which repeat the myths and glorify the killer. Ripper tours, the worst of which project images of the mutilated bodies on the, of the women in the fabric of the modern city in a callous a repetition of the brutality of the murderer, and even the travesty of a museum to the killer, are however the main legacy that most people will experience when they encounter the history of the Whitechapel murders. They, you are not most people. The museum in Cable Street can be dismissed as little more than an attraction. Paul and I have had that discussion as well. But very many visitors to this area will only see the Whitechapel murder case through the lens of this tawdry and exploitative adventure. As Claire Hayward complains, the museum relies on myth and morbid imagination to sew a patchy narrative together. It lacks the information required to teach visitors much about Jack the Ripper, his victims, or the historical context in which they live. Lonsdale notes that the Ripper's victims are themselves often reduced to stage props in discussions of these crimes, their lives overshadowed by repeated exhibition of their bodies in the gruesome mortuary photos which you have now come to remember them. The Jack the Ripper Museum is the epitome of this exploitation of the victims, engaging, as some elements of the Victorian press did, in victim blaming and relegating the five women to the status of supporting characters 
in a fictionalised narrative of Jack the Ripper as anti-hero. There is an important role then for public history, a relatively new academic discipline, in challenging the prevailing misrepresentation of Whitechapel and the Ripper case. Serious questions need to be asked about how we present history and whose history are we telling when we do. This is a question that has already been applied to the history of the black of black British immigrants, to slavery and imperial history, to the Holocaust and other sensitive topics. So why not <coughs> Jack the Ripper? The Whitechapel murders are taught in schools, but they often fall short, often fall short there of addressing some of the myths and stereotypes generated by 130 years of Ripperology. <coughs> the Ripper, then, is clearly a topic that public historians could bring a much-needed intellectual perspective to. Ripperology has moved on since the 1980s when Cameron dismissed it as a pseudo-intellectual and accused some of those involved in writing about the case of stupidity and a barely suppressed erotic excitement with the idea of killing for sexual pleasure and, in the case of Jack the Ripper, getting away with it. Now, very many of you who are involved with the Whitechapel Society that's the Casebook internet site, are much more interested in finding out about the women who were killed and the lives that they led. You, many of you, have painstakingly researched the area and challenged some of the preconceived myths that surround it. But ripperologists come in all shapes and sizes, male and female, and many delight in adopting pseudonyms inspired by the case. I hope none of them are here today, but they are. <laughs> uh, so we have Sir Robert Anderson, Abilene, Mr. Barnett, PC Neal, Saucy Jack, Leather Apron, even Carotid Capers, among the many contributors to the Casebook message boards and numerous Facebook sites. Maybe that's fine. Maybe it's just a bit of fun, but I wonder sometimes. I asked if any of this matters because I believe it does. The vacuum caused by the lack of academic history, crime history in particular, my area of history, because I'm a, I'm a historian of crime rather than, than a lecturer in crime as such with the Whitechapel murder case, has allowed the narrative to be driven by popular history, by ripperology and by the entertainment industry. And this has not served the victims of the Ripper very well. There is space for proper engagement by historians with the Ripper case and with ripperology. I think that's important. Several prominent ripperologists <coughs> are keen to debate the case and its legacy with crime and culture historians. And in fact, I got Paul Begg up to Northampton to do just that with me a few years ago. And there's much to be learned from them and from years of dedicated research that have invested, been invested in the minutiae of this case. Moreover, the recent Me Too campaign by women across the globe to expose the inherent misogyny of world society, the Ripper needs to undergo a cultural transformation. No longer can he be presented as the criminal mastermind who eluded the Met's finest, or a symbol of male dominance to inspire the next generation of femicides, nor a way to justify whorephobia and the continued exploitation of women to satisfy unrestrained male lust. Jack the Ripper needs to be brought out of the dark shadows into the light and exposed to the full glare of academic and other study. His victims should be commemorated and their deaths recognised as symbolic of thousands of women who suffered at the hands of male abusers before and after 1888. Deborah Cameron demanded this in 1988 and we are still waiting. As she wrote then, those who glorify the criminal should be forced to remember his victims. History involves understanding events in the context of the time in which they occurred, not taking them as isolated moments. How does a river case make any sense without the contextual understanding of contemporary poverty, 
overcrowding, immigration, and fears about radical new political ideas. The best histories of the Ripper address these, while others virtually ignore them or trot out oft-repeated half-truths and assumptions. The effect of years of popular cultural representations of the Ripper has been to create an image of the past which doesn't really accord with the reality. There's an important underlying issue here, and this is the way in which a body of writing such as that surrounding the Ripper case reinforces and recycles established facts and presents them as evidence. In this way, history is constructed as a layer upon layer of facts are interwoven and then interpreted. Over the past hundred years or more of Ripper writing, the narratives of the killing have become so well established that we have to some extent at least assumed we know what happened. In reality, of course, we have known <coughs> relatively little about how the murder operated and still less about his motivation. It's this gap in the knowledge that paradoxically allows a continual stream of writers to attempt to solve the case. This situation is not helped, of course, by texts that almost entirely fail to acknowledge the source of their information, and there are plenty of those. It's no surprise, then, that the handful of Ripper books or authors that have stood the test of time are those penned for by, for example, Paul Begg, Don Romolo and Philip Sugden that approach the case with the rigour it requires. Academics who have for so long turned their collective noses at, up at the Whitechapel case are now embracing it. And social and cultural history modules based on the murders are now commonplace in British universities like mine. And the case is also part of the national curriculum in the schools. Jack Ripple, we might say, has been rendered respectable or at least deemed fit for academic study. Fundamentally then, and I'm finishing now, what I'm saying is that we need to work more closely together as academics, professionals and keen amateur, keen amateur historians. We need, to do this, we need to do this to better understand the past, including the Whitechapel murders and their context. If we don't, then we allow myth, misinterpretation and fake news to exist, grow and be accepted as fact. You might not believe I have one, but my hairdresser told me recently <laughs> that he assumed Jack the Ripper was a fantasy figure, he is 35, that the murders were just an old legend, not real. One of my newest colleagues at the university is a blue badge guide in London, and he no longer runs Whitechapel tours, because when he tried to tell the punters about, this is his words, about the social history of the area, they only wanted, to give, they only wanted him to give them gore as entertainment. Hate crimes rooted in homophobia, misogyny, racism, and anti-Semitism remain as the events of last weekend remind us big issues in our society, just as they were in 1888. Um, and history should always, in my opinion, be part of a solution to social evils such as these. History is not just about the past and looking at it and boxing it up and saying, isn't that pretty? It's about understanding it. Um, it should challenge hate by showing the examples of how this blighted society in the past and remind us of the consequences of doing nothing about it. And so if someone comes along who makes us feel uncomfortable, like Charlotte Mallison perhaps, or challenges our received wisdom of a case we've been researching for decades, as Harry Rubenholz just has, then instead of being defensive or antagonistic, and I'm not suggesting anyone in this room was, I think we need to listen, especially when those people are well qualified on two fronts as academic researchers and women. Ripperology has a lot to offer, but it needs to root out the elements that bring it into disrepute, or it's unlikely to ever be properly taken seriously. Something Paul Beck told me two years ago that he really wanted was for Ripperology to be taken seriously and not just dismissed as a bunch of whatever. 
For us in academia, we need to recognise the incredible level of research and analysis that is going on outside of the academy. So, to conclude, I think history needs all of us. We'd like to thank Drew Gray, Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, and Andrew Firth for making the release of this talk possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>